Why is it so hard to get the hair-on-fire action on climate we need to deal with the crisis? Could it have something to do with our brains? So we have trouble perceiving it. We have trouble attributing the changes that we see to climate change. And it's very hard for us to problem solve for problems that are unlike anything that have ever threatened us before, particularly when they're really big threats and they're not right in front of us. People have come around to some extent because, well, frankly, because of more information and more social pressures, more people are concerned about climate change and because, in fact, the effects of climate change are more visible to people through floods and hurricanes and storms and fires and all the other things that we hear about on a daily basis. So the perception is a problem and then the action is a problem. And why is that action a problem? Because the kinds of things that you have to do to mitigate for climate change, whether it's in the sphere of your personal life or whether it's in the sphere of your work life as a middle manager of a company or even the CEO of a company or a politician or a policymaker or an educator, the decisions you have to make are not decisions that feel, for most people, very rewarding. Then we talk with one climate activist who's putting Duhame's lessons to work. My experience being in a lot of crews and being a host is that people energized one another. It's this notion, and it's also touched on in that book that you are talking to Anne about, Minding the Climate. We inspire one another when we come together in a group and when we share what we're up to. And when we come together, let's call ourselves, because we're ready to take our next step in the climate realm, let's call ourselves early adopters. When we talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, then the early majority is changed and they are ready to come on board too. That's Dar Riley, co-founder of the Carbon Crew Project. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. And hey, do you know you can go to writersvoice.net to find extra content with links, book excerpts, and extended interviews. As we produce this show, a bomb cyclone is bearing down on the West Coast, the second in three weeks. Buffalo, New York is digging out of its most deadly blizzard ever. Meanwhile, carbon pollution in the atmosphere is spiking to record levels, and Europe is basking in record January heat. Climatologists say it's an extreme event unlike anything in European history. The steady drumbeat of climate catastrophe is clamoring in our ears. But how many people are really listening? Listening in a way to make the changes we need in time to survive. Why aren't they listening? And is there anything we can do to change that? Neuroscientist Dr. Anne-Christine Duhame tackles this question in her book, Minding the Climate. She explores how our long evolution as a species has shaped our brains to respond to immediate threats, but to miss or discount ones that play out over the long term. But she also shows that the brain's enormous capacity for change is reason for hope. 
By understanding both the barriers and the spurs to change, we can move the needle on climate action. Dr. Anne-Christine Duhame, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you very much. Uh, you are a doctor. You're a pediatric neurosurgeon at Mass General Hospital. What led you to write the book, Minding the Climate? It's a somewhat circuitous story, but not all that surprising. Many physicians are concerned about climate change. And um, I was very lucky in that I had you know, the flexibility to go down a path not taken, so to speak. So early in my career, I was very interested in sort of the state of the planet and wildlife. And at the time I was coming of age, it, the concern was about population and outstripping resources and the lack of balance in the world between humans and other species and being unable to feed people because of human population explosion. Climate change was not a big concern at that time. A few people in the sciences were starting to think about it, but it really hadn't reached the general public. But as climate change became more and more of an issue, and at the same time that I was taking care of children and thinking about their futures and the futures we were trying to protect for them one at a time by dealing with their serious health issues, I became increasingly concerned about what kind of life, what kind of future we were leaving them. And that conflict between taking care of one child at a time, one family at a time, which is very, very satisfying and rewarding, but also being concerned about this larger issue led me to finally say, I have to, I have to see what I can do, if anything, uh, in this other sphere. And that led to the book. As a climate activist myself, I'm always knocking my head against the wall, thinking, people, wake up. This is an existential crisis. Why are we not <laughs> massing in the streets? And uh, this book is very much about why we're not doing that and maybe how we can turn that around. So I first want to ask you, by design, the book has to focus on the individual because it really uh, discusses how people process the threat of climate change given our evolutionary history and the way our brains have evolved. But it's a systemic problem, and we're not going to solve it without massive system change. Talk about how you integrate, because you're aware of that, you talk about that in the book, how do you integrate the personal and the political, maybe just to use that phrase? Sure. You know, that's the most common question I get, and the most common criticism of the premise of the book, which is, individual behavior is not going to solve this problem. And that response happens because people think that if you're talking about the brain, you're talking about an individual. And of course you are by definition. I mean, there is no such thing as a collective brain. We only have one per person. On the other hand, every decision made, whether it's as part of a group, as part of a committee, as part of a movement, as part of a political uh, enterprise, Every decision has to be made through the equipment that we use to make decisions, which is our human brain. And therefore, even collective action has to occur through individual people, enough of them, uh, granted, uh, having their minds changed, having their decision changed. So there is no sharp division between the individual brain and collective or political action. If you are the key voter on an issue, 
in a close vote, that one person who, who decides based on how humans make decisions and influenced by many other people, which is a huge influence on how we make decisions as individuals based on the people around us, still gets processed through the brain. So by understanding how that happens, whether the context is decisions you make in your personal life or decisions that people make in the context of political, company decisions, educational leadership decisions, cultural decisions, or collective action decisions, each of those decisions has to get processed through the same equipment. So understanding how that equipment works may give us a little bit of insight into the kind of influences that tip that decision one way or another. So let's talk about that equipment. Um, The book goes into a fair amount of detail, fascinating detail about how the brain works. But let's zero in on the, say, the foundation of that, and that is reward-seeking. Explain to us how the brain has evolved in order to seek rewards and what that means for how we process the problem of the climate catastrophe. Sure. First off, the most important thing for your listeners to know is that when we talk about reward or the reward system in the human brain from a neurobiology perspective, we're not talking about the word reward in the common use of that word in regular language. So when we think of reward, you think of, oh, my, you know, my credit card gives me rewards. If I, you know, travel on Amtrak or I buy, you know, uh, groceries from a certain grocery store or whatever, I get rewards. These are like points and you can get extra things from them. That's the common way we think of reward, like a prize. In neurobiology, the word reward has quite a different meaning. It is a system that has been created through evolutionary pressures to help teach us how to make decisions that will help us maximally survive and reproduce. So the reward system of animals and including humans is designed to weigh in on decisions that have typically immediate survival value. Another caveat about this is that people think reward influence on decision-making is always positive. Like I'm going for a positive reward, like a prize. No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that when you make a decision, you are making it based on an enormous equation of influences, many of which are below your level of awareness, some of which are weighted by evolution to uh, push you in a particular direction based on survival pressures of the past and the way your system works, the way certain things weigh more heavily in decisions than others. And so one critic mentioned, well, you know, people who are uh, in dire conditions and stand up for say, human rights at great expense to themselves, that's not rewarding. Well, it's not if you're using the word reward in the sense that we think of it as a prize or something at the bottom of the cereal box. But when you're making that decision to stand up for human rights, even though it puts your your own physical being at risk, something about that choice was rewarding to you in the way we mean it in neurobiology. That is, you made that choice Because all the little things that made you decide that, when you put them on the scale, they tipped you towards taking that action, even if the action had risk to yourself. So I'm lumping together a few concepts here. I hope I'm not being too confusing. But what I'm trying to say is 
that the concept of the reward system is that it is part of the way evolution tuned our brains to make decisions based on many, many inputs, the bulk of which have to do with things that were associated with survival and reproduction during our evolutionary history, but also other things that less directly were part of those survival pressures like cooperation, like altruism, like what we call agency, the reward of accomplishing something, like novelty. So there are many rewards, many aspects of human life that are rewarding, that are not just about acquisition and money and getting new things. Um, uh, our, our system is designed to have a lot of nuance and a lot of uh, social input, which is gets us back to the theme of collective decision-making. This is Writer's Voice, and we're talking with Anne-Christine Duhame about her book, Minding the Climate. It's about how our brain's evolution gets in the way of climate action, and what can be done to change that. I know that, I mean, one big issue, of course, is that we evolve to respond to short-term influences, not long-term influences. Although in the case of cooperation, you could argue there's long-term influence that's operative there. I mean, in many cultures, as we were evolving into the human beings we are today, people did things for others because they understood at a certain point others were going to do things for them. So fold that into how we can grapple with the issue of climate change by using the kinds of natural rewards that our brains have evolved to have. One thing to comment on is this issue of short and long term, which of course catches the public's attention. Our brains are sufficiently flexible that not everything is about immediacy. Although we are weighted towards immediacy, we do have the capacity to conceive of and work towards more long-range rewards. If we didn't have that capacity, who would raise children? <laughs> who, who would do many things that we do as part of our normal lives where you have to have delayed gratification or you have to be able to conceptualize things in the future that are going to be better than what they are right now as you're slogging through something difficult, studying for an exam, you know, taking classes, learning a skill. These things take time and patience. And if we didn't have the capacity to think ahead, uh, we would not have survived. So we do have that capacity, although given a choice between that piece of chocolate right now and uh, losing weight to fit into that pair of pants that's getting tight, we oftentimes prioritize the chocolate because our decisions are weighted in certain ways so that one thing may be a little stronger than the other. And of course, we vary from person to person. Um, everybody has, many people have heard about the marshmallow study where, you know, kids are put in a room with marshmallows and told to wait until they, you know, the person comes back and then they'll get two marshmallows or whatever, something like that. And, you know, what's shown is that these abilities to uh, forego immediate reward for something bigger uh, in the long run vary with age and they vary with temperament, with personality, with many other traits. But to get back to your question about how do we harness the power of reward and decision-making to uh, push us a little to to lean us towards pro-environmental behavior. And that's sort of at the crux of the difficulty that the book tries to address. Because it is easier for most people to do something that gives them something immediate. And it is difficult for us to perceive 
of these long range things that humans have never experienced before in the realm of climate change. So there are two parts of this equation with respect to climate change and reward. The first is our difficulty with just even perceiving the problem. It's attributable to many other influences. And one of the um, aspects of, of the human brain that the book delves into a little bit is this concept of gullibility. Now, the term gullibility, like the term reward, has a different meaning when you use it in normal conversation. But in the neurologic sense, the term gullibility means that inherited, evolutionarily derived tendency for humans to believe what they are told uh, by people in positions of authority. And you can imagine why that was so important evolutionarily. If you were about to step on a on a ant nest or or go into rushing water or fall off a cliff and your grandmother or great uncle yelled stop and you didn't stop, you would we would not have survived the way that we did. And so people evolved this tendency to believe what they're told socially. So we have difficulty perceiving climate change because of its temporal difficulties, but we also have difficulty perceiving it for two other reasons. One, we simply don't have the sensors to perceive it. If we had sensors for carbon dioxide and methane, the way we have sensors for sound and certain visual things and certain smells, um, we would be in a different place. But we didn't need evolutionarily to evolve the ability to sense these things because they were not threats to us. So natural selection would not have selected for them at the time that our brains and sensory organs were constructed. So we have trouble perceiving it. We have trouble attributing the changes that we see to climate change. And it's very hard for us to problem solve for problems that are unlike anything that have ever threatened us before, particularly when they're really big threats and they're not right in front of us. People have come around to some extent because, well, frankly, because of more information and more social pressures, more people are concerned about climate change. And because, in fact, the um, effects of climate change are more visible to people through floods and hurricanes and storms and fires and all the other things that we hear about on a daily basis. So the perception is a problem and then the action is a problem. And why is that action a problem? Because the kinds of things that you have to do to mitigate for climate change, whether it's in the sphere of your personal life or whether it's in the sphere of your work life as a middle manager of a company or even the CEO of a company or a politician or a policymaker or an educator, the decisions you have to make are not decisions that feel, for most people, very rewarding. So, all the rules that you have used to make your decisions, all the things that have been rewarding, getting ahead, um, you know, raising your family in a healthy way and so on, the immediacy of those things, those are easier to see. But climate change is more work to understand, more work to perceive, and even the decisions that you have to make, by and large, do not align very well with the kinds of things that previously in most people's lives and certainly evolutionarily in the life of the brain uh, have been very rewarding. One of the things you talk about is the problem of overconsumption. For example, I mean, the right wing is always saying, oh, those climate, you know, woke climate people want to take away your stuff. 
And yet I have been engaged with the climate issue since I can remember in 2004 when I realized that we could be among the last generations on the planet. And I look at my granddaughter, who's 18, as a matter of fact. She doesn't want to buy new clothes. I don't either. I I get as if I need something, you know, I'll try to get it used. And I always think through my consumption decisions because I am really aware of the cost to the future, to the cost to now, to the cost to all the animals that I really, really care about of my overconsumption. So how would you craft the a message around the need to cut overconsumption or maybe to change how we consume in order to help the climate crisis? So this is the challenge, but here are some of the solutions that, these are not my solutions. These are the solutions that people who work in this field I've compiled. And people have done research on what works best to change people's behavior in pro-environmental directions. And in order to try to answer that question, I had to, in the book, look at what has been found to be most effective in difficult behavior change about other topics, not about climate change. What about addiction? What about overeating? What about other kinds of behaviors that are particularly resistant to change. And in order to understand a little bit about that, this is where understanding how the brain creates these problems in the first place, not the brain creates, but the brain responds to the world and thereby creates a situation where the brain is not working in a way that is most adaptive for uh, for the individual who has this problem. So addiction is a great example. Addicts don't want to be addicted, but what addiction represents, it's a complicated question, but what it represents is a kind of consumption of something, even when it is maladaptive, even when it is not helping your short-term survival or health or well-being. And the way that works is in some ways parallel, uh, particularly some authors believe this, to the way we overconsume, even when it isn't in our best long-term interest. And understanding the brain mechanisms behind this will will help to some extent. So what helps in addiction? Well, the best, most effective treatments substitute one set of rewards, the maladaptive ones, for rewards that are less maladaptive. So this is the basis of many 12-step recovery type programs. And in the book, I talk about a program in which moms or uh, pregnant women or, or new moms were in a program where they composed poetry with help to their unborn child or newborn. And then that poetry was put to music by professional musicians. And the women actually saw there or did themselves perform these songs for their child in very reputable places. One was Carnegie Hall. And this was part of a multifaceted support system where you know, people rallied around these moms that had been addicts or were struggling with addiction or were in recovery. Um, they helped them with their new family, their new baby. Uh, there was a, a just tremendous amount of social reward and also getting them away from those contexts where we know that the brain creates habits that are very difficult to overcome. There's a survival reason for that. There's a neurologic reason for that, which is described in more detail in the book. But what happens in programs like that is that one set of rewards is substituted for a maladaptive set of rewards. And the music and the poem 
that the women write themselves and perform in public taps into many things that have been shown to help behavior change. Making a public statement, that's part of a 12-step program in many uh, addiction programs. Uh, having social support, that's an enormously helpful thing for uh, people trying to overcome difficult behavioral challenges. And likewise, in climate change behavior, pro-environmental behavior, one example is okay, you need new furniture because, well, your couch broke, somebody sat on it or whatever, or, you know, you just want to change. Well, getting thrift store fines and fixing them up and substituting things that have a lower environmental profile for something that has a worse environmental profile, but adding in the reward of it's quirky. I found it myself. It's one of a kind. I fixed it up. I have some agency in this. Look at that beautiful blue color. I painted that you know, old chair or whatever. Um, and so you're substituting one set of rewards for another. Uh, and in that way, you can not have pro-environmental behavior necessarily be less rewarding, but just be differently rewarding. That's the strategy behind changes in your diet. Nobody says you have to eat twigs, twigs and sticks, um, but having a more plant-based diet uh, is healthier for you, healthier for the planet. Um, so there are health benefits, but it's not going to work if you don't like the food. So how do you how do you make that diet more palatable? Well, you have neat spices. You have other people that have, you know, vegetarian cooking classes. You um, have a party and you have a lot of plant-based things and somebody comments about how good they are. So it's not doing without. It's substituting things that are as rewarding. And if you can, more rewarding, but are also aligned with the pro-environmental goals. Now, that's not always enough. And we can talk about the fact that some rewards are simply going to have to come from your cognition. And that's another strategy that we discuss further in the book. This is Writer's Voice, and we're talking with Anne-Christine Duhame about her book, Minding the Climate. It's about how our brain's evolution gets in the way of climate action and what can be done to change that. Yeah, you talk about how information isn't enough, but it is a precursor, that you do have to know something about what's going on. And you say, make it concrete and, and relatable. One of the things that really uh, excited me was how you talk about the social rewards and some programs for that. You talk about an eco-team program. Tell us about that. This was in Europe, and this was... Um a very, I thought, uh, clever way to try to learn how things might work or might not work well in the pro-environmental behavior change world. So it's very similar to what we just talked about with the, um, the songs for the addicted moms. It's substituting social reward for things that are either difficult or require effort. One of the things about climate change information is that it's homework. It's not like, you know, you tune into I don't know, Netflix and watch a fun movie. I mean, to learn about climate change and learn about your potential role in it and um, what kind of things you can do, it's homework. It's not fun to do that for most people. And uh, likewise, to try to make it fun takes somebody putting out the effort. So the Eco Team's effort reached tens of thousands of households in Europe. And it worked like this. It, it encompassed many of the principles we've discussed. Number one, you are more likely to believe things 
uh, from people you consider either that you know or consider authoritative. This is gullibility. And the eco team's approach is that there are neighborhood leaders that everybody knows, and generally they're people that are kind of leader personalities. And that's where the incentive came from, from people they knew, not from some talking head that they didn't necessarily trust. So that's one element. Another element was the teamwork. So this was neighborhoods that got together voluntarily, but with some cajoling by somebody they perceived as a neighborhood leader. And they had some agency, some decision-making, things they had control over. That is another important ingredient in behavior change. So they got a list of about 100 things that they could think about changing um, as a neighborhood, and they got detailed instruction on how to do it. So they might pick, for example, let's see if we can reduce our solid trash. Let's see if we can reduce our electricity consumption. They would pick from a list and they got to choose as a group. And then once they chose, so they had control, then they would be taught how to measure the changes. They would be taught how to um, reduce their impact and then how to measure it. And then they would get together regularly. They would basically have like parties and get together. They could socialize with the people in the neighborhood. There's a social reward. And they would, you know, see how they were doing. Did they reduce their solid waste, their trash that week? Did they cut their um, energy use that week? Then they added another element that also has been shown to help motivate human behavior, and that is competition. So when you go to a hotel and you say, and you see the little sign that says 75% of people in this hotel uh, use their towels more than once, that's a competitive gauntlet that the hotel is is throwing at you. And likewise, um, for many people, competing to try to be better than somebody else is part of the way they are designed to work. So trying to get um, the very you know lowest amount of solid waste and the best energy savings uh, compared to that neighborhood that has a different sports team, for example, that you compete against anyway. So all of these things uh, went together. And just like a 12-step program uses multiple elements, social rewards, substitution of different rewards, small gains that you can measure like weigh-ins or how many days sober, it's the same principles. And what was found, the most interesting part of this program, as far as I'm concerned, is that people substituted different rewards in that they save money and, you know, for their households. And what was one of the things that often uh, holds back pro-environmental changes that it doesn't last. It might last if you have a little drive at work to, you know, recycle or something like that, but then it doesn't necessarily what we call generalize. But in eco-teams, what was found is that even after the pro formal part of the program ended, people were still doing some of these changes and in fact, instituting new pro-environmental behaviors into their lives, maybe about transportation or maybe about you know, changing their energy provider to a green energy provider. And that's because something about doing this collectively with others changed how they perceived themselves and changed their underlying self-image that environment became important to them. It became part of their identity. And that's how you change culture and make a lasting change. Can that kind of a program be scaled up? Uh, it's hard to know. I mean, it did reach a lot of households. I'm not necessarily saying that's the only answer. But what I am saying is that many of the elements there, substituting one behavior for another, social pressures, which are very powerful for human beings, um, and making things fun instead of just homework and drudgery, all can be effective. 
Well, that's a great example. I mean, it, it occurred to me as you were talking about it that, you know, we, we had the Inflation Reduction Act passed. It, it frees up billions of, of dollars to make it easier for people to do the right thing. Wouldn't it have been nice if there had been a component of that or, an, or another program that actually sets up Eco teams for Americans in their neighborhoods and brings and brings them together. Of course, that's a tall order when we have so much political division. But that's the kind of thinking I think that's so important. Doctor Anne Christine Duhame, this is such an important book: "Minding the Climate: How Neuroscience Can Help Solve Our Environmental Crisis." Thank you so much for writing it, and thank you so much for talking with us about it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. When I read Anne-Christine Duhame's book, Minding the Climate, I immediately thought of my friend, Dar Riley. She's an advocate and practitioner of the climate action movement developed by Paul Hawken called Drawdown. It promotes a hundred solutions to the climate crisis that ordinary people can engage in. Growing out of her work with Drawdown, Riley co-founded the Carbon Crew Project. It's a program geared for small groups of friends and neighbors to lessen their carbon footprint step by step. Dar Riley, welcome to welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you so much for inviting me, Francesca. I always love talking to you. Well, yes, yeah, so our listeners will uh, figure out then by what you said that we do know each other. You live on the east end of Long Island, as do I, and we both work in the climate, um, you know, we're both climate activists. Uh, I met you quite a while ago, in fact, um, oh, very impressed by your energy at that time, but that was before you got into Drawdown. Tell us about Drawdown and why you became so involved with it. Well, there's a, several really important things about Drawdown. And one of them was that Paul Hawken was so concerned about the environment and what our priorities should be, but there wasn't a set of priorities out there that he brought together all these scientists. And so what they did was create a set of 100 most powerful solutions. So being able to work with a priority list is a phenomenal advantage when we really want to impact um, climate change, as obviously we do. And the other thing that he did was bring his own Buddhist philosophy to the work. And that was that this is an opportunity for us. This is our time to come together and be creative and collaborative and do it in a positive way. And that was so incredibly moving to me than coming from the place of disaster. We don't focus on disaster. We don't focus on fighting. We don't focus on any war attributes. What we really do is look at this in a beautiful way of opportunity and collaboration and creativity. So that just pulled me right in. And um, that's how I got inspired by it. And um, also, I don't know if you remember the Pashamama Alliance, Lynn Twist's organization out in California, and, and the Earth Has Rights. She does a wonderful thing. She went down to the rainforest, and when she asked them, hey, how can we help with this situation? They said, go back home and teach people what's going on. 
and teach them the importance of the earth. So when Lynn Twist, who's a friend of Paul Hawkins, saw all of Paul Hawkins' materials, she put together her own course so that people could teach um, drawdown work. And I happened to be a member of the Pashamama Alliance. So the first thing that I did when I discovered all of this was to put out a course from the Rogers Memorial Library. I think it was a five session course or six session course based on the material, the outline that Lynn Twist had offered up on her Pashamama Alliance website. That's called the Pachamama Alliance. Pachamama, all one word. Pachamama Alliance. I, I think Pachamama stands for the earth. It's kind of like the indigenous word for Gaia. Now, draw down East End. This is a, a, a group that is local to us here. You mentioned the library. That's a library in Southampton, New York. Tell us what Drawdown, when Drawdown East End began, and then tell us why and how it began this carbon crew project. Well, you know, I was mentioning that I put together this course for the Rogers Memorial Library, and a number of people signed up for it and spent a lot of time really digging into the material that we were learning. And what came out of that was two people in particular. One was Mary Morgan, who lives in Orient Point, and the other was Crave Vansicle, who lives in Montauk and East Hampton. And um, so I invited the two of them to come together with me and create actually something we called Drawdown East End. And the notion behind Drawdown East End was to bring awareness to our whole community that there are these wonderful priorities out there and that there are opportunities for people to really have impact. Um, so we've been working together and then some other people wanted to join us. So um, we had the three of us at the, at the head of that. Um, there actually has been a very interesting little shift at the time we got permission from Drawdown, um, verbal permission that we use their name because we didn't want to do it without um, going through the proper procedures. They have just recently said, hey guys, guess what? You may no longer use the name Drawdown. So all of the organizations around the United States, almost all of them have been asked to cease and desist using the name Drawdown. We haven't come up with a new name yet, but we'll let you know when we do. Anyway. anyway. <laughs> that just doesn't seem like a very Buddhist thing to do, I have to say. Well, guess what? That would never have come about if Paul Hawken hadn't moved on to something else. He left that organization once he'd set it up and structured it. And in fact, he was not happy at all that they said it couldn't be used anymore. Uh, but anyway, okay, a little transition, and that is um, Paul Hawken. I'm going to stop you right there. Yeah, yeah. Because I realized I need to really ask you a little bit more about Drawdown. You said the priorities. Give us a few of the top priorities. Okay. Of course, I'm so ecstatic that you asked me that question because, because this is the easiest thing in the whole wide world we could possibly do. And it's the most impactful thing we could possibly do. And we don't even know it. And that is we could buy just exactly as much food as we eat. It's sometimes called ending food waste. A lot of people think, well, that's okay. I can put my wasted food in compost so I don't have that as food waste anymore. And so it's wonderful for us to do composting. Composting is a number 60 solution. 
It's very impactful because of the methane that's created by food waste in landfill. And yet it's a number 60 solution down the way. If we want to be impactful, which is what we do because we have a limited amount of time left, what we want to do is stop creating food waste to begin with. So I'm going to go on about this a little bit more because it's so important. But, but when we create commercial food, which most of us eat instead of eating from our gardens, but there's so much water, irrigation, transportation, packaging, fertilizers, pesticides in the stores. Uh, you know, it's um, the stores heated and all of those things that happen to create the situation. There's so much emissions in, represented in the food that we purchase and bring home. And when we let it sit in our refrigerator and rot in the United States, that's what Americans do with 40% of the food that we buy. So it's an advantage for us. This is a number one solution. And it also impacts our pocketbooks. If we're, if we're purchasing 40% less less food, then we save all that money as well. So being really careful with exactly what you buy, when you're going to cook it, what foods you buy. I am so careful to buy foods that last a longer time in my fridge. So if I've made a bit of an error about what I'm cooking that day, because I get invited out, it's still going to be good. So lots of different ways. Also, I've learned and I'm dying to put out in some kind of book form, like what do you do with the bottoms of broccoli. Well, there's really a lot of things that we can do. Anyway, I'm going on and on, but you get the point. No, actually, uh, I'm so glad you did mention that because uh, <laughs> here we are going in a little bit on a tangent, but not really. You know, just yesterday, I, I picked up our local paper and I saw mention of your co-founder of uh, then Drawdown East End, Mary Morgan, and a project that she initiated I believe on the North Fork then, which is, you know, we've heard about uh, farm to fork where people eat food that's been dire directly uh, comes from farms. This is fork to farm, which is a project to gather food waste. And yes, it isn't the same as just buying a as much as you need, but given that we do waste a lot of food. We can do something with it. Pick up that food waste and transport it to local farms that do then compost it and then turn it around into food again, local food. This is a this, an example of the circular economy. So I just wanted to say there are many solutions to this. Absolutely, we should always prevent the upstream potential for waste. But once we have it, once we have that waste, there are better things to do with it. Yes, I'm so glad that you're talking about that article. And also, exactly at the same time, there was a wonderful article in the New York Times about a group in Ohio that's done a lot, both in composting and, and educating people about not creating food to be wasted to begin with. In the same week, both of those articles came out. You know, and other one of the really important solutions of drawdown, priorities of drawdown, is uh, women's education and also the provision of 
birth control, not the imposition of birth control, but the uh, provision of it to women who want it, and that those two are really linked and, and, and also really important. And I think that's such an important thing to remember that, you know, as we fight against as we fight against attempts to control uh, to limit women's reproductive freedom, that that fight for reproductive freedom is also linked to climate change. Absolutely, it is actually. If if you combine that with children's education and uh, providing women opportunities um, for their own health, that is combined the number one solution. I was listening to a great uh, podcast yesterday. Oh, no, it was in the book. It was in the book, Minding the Climate, that if we choose to have one less child, if we live in an affluent country, if we choose to have one less child. Another thing that I often hear is that if we make a plan, if we make a family plan, it's not like saying, hey, don't have a child. It's, it's saying, make a plan for the family that you want. And that in and of itself will stabilize the population in a way that's perfect for us. This is Writer's Voice, and we're talking with Dar Riley about the Carbon Crew Project. It uses the book 2040 by Damon Gamow to create a personal climate action plan in a small group with others. Now let's go to Carbon Crew Project. Tell us about this project. Tell us, you know, it's based on a book. Tell us about the book and the movie, and then we'll go into the details of actually how the Carbon Crew Project works. Okay, great. Well, behind the scenes, there is this fellow in Australia, Damon Gamow, and he had not been very environmental. He was an extremely well-known actor and created an amazing movie, um, that sugar film, I think is what it's called down there. But he took his family to... Brazil and was in the rainforest and all of a sudden his perception of what was happening in the world and the degradation of the environment just grew in him and overnight he became an environmentalist. And as he searched around the world for solutions, he bumped into Paul Hawken and the Drawdown Priority Project. And they became best buddies. And out of that, well, actually, Damon was already starting this. He was going around the world looking for solutions, and then the work of Drawdown informed him a lot more. He put together this movie that you're mentioning, 2040, and we showed it a couple of years ago to a record-breaking crowd in Southampton in January. Southampton Arts Center um, assisted us doing that, and they were totally shocked and said it was the biggest audience that they had ever had for something that time of year. Everybody really loved this film. And he also wrote a book called The 2040 Handbook. And as we were going through all that material and saw the value of it, some of the things that were mentioned in that book is that change happens when the early adopters are motivated and talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. That's the work of Catherine Hayhoe, the scientist from Texas, who, who says that the most important thing we can do for climate change is talk about it. So we also learned that what Bernie Sanders did in his campaign was that people wanted to get together in, in person and they have coffee clutches. 
And then what their task was or what they wanted to do was go out and replicate that and have their own coffee clutch. And we also learned the power of the individual that in major scientific studies in the United States and in Europe, they understand that in fact, two thirds of all emissions are determined by choices that we make at the household level. So this is really incredible. And uh, bringing that together with um, Paul Hawkins' positivity, we realized that if we could bring groups of people together and we could make our own plans together, that we would be empowered. We'd already been working in Drawdown East End with creating climate action plans. And this notion was that we really needed personal climate action plans, PCAPs. And some of us who were reading the book together, the 2040 Handbook, said, hey, this would be a perfect book club on a mission kind of way, that we could take these different topics one week at a time and create our entirely own personalized climate action plans, with, of course, the aim to reduce our overall carbon footprint by 50%. So we started getting together and creating iterations of this, you might call it a course, it's hosted by anyone who would like to host it. What we do is we created a curriculum and we put that on the web. So it's open sourced. Anybody can go there and they can find this curriculum for the five sessions following the book, uh, 2040 Handbook. And then we supply them with other kinds of materials that augment what's in the book. So if we're working on fashion, we're suggesting the movie, um, The True Cost amazing film, by the way. So there are other things one can do in between times. We also show some short clips during the hour and 20 minute sessions that we have. And we tell each other about what we're thinking of doing, about what our climate action plan is. So it's extremely non-judgmental. It's an opportunity to take each of our own next steps. So there's no judgment. There's crews with people who've never hardly done a thing before and crew with um, the mayor of Hastings on Hudson, who's done everything and ran for mayorship 100% on a green campaign. And you've been in a cruise, so you know, but my experience being in a lot of crews and being a host is that people energize one another. It's this notion, and it's also touched on in that book that you are talking to Anne about um, as well minding the climate. We inspire one another when we come together in a group and when we share what we're up to. And when we come together, let's call ourselves because we're ready to take our next step in the climate realm. Let's call ourselves early adopters. When we talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, then the early majority is changed and they are ready to come on board too. So this is this wave of ripple effect. It says um, the title of, of the project is Carbon Crew, but it's C.R.E.W. What does that stand for? Carbon Reduction for Earth Well-Being. Uh, so thanks for asking. So our website is carboncrewproject.org. CarbonCrewProject.org. We will link to that uh, at our website, writersvoice.net. And it is a brilliant name. So now let's get down to the nitty gritty. A typical carbon crew project. Well, you go through different stages. What are some of the different 
things that you tackle in the home? I mean, food waste, we know that's going to be one of them. What are some of the other topics that each session of the crew is is addressing? Well, a great question. So we do use the book as our guide and go through it. So each week we're reading either one or two chapters. So for example, um, we meet together first and 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 go over the whole concept and why we're doing what we're doing. And then the first one that we address is energy and transportation. So we look at our transportation needs and some of us who live out here in, um, well, I live in the middle of the woods, three miles from town. Um, so it's not uh, there's not public transportation for me. what kind of changes can I make? And does an electric car make sense for me to purchase over the next five years? Um, everybody's got their own different things that they can do in transportation. Um, in energy, the first thing that we learn is if we can create a green energy supply for our house, then the number one thing we want to do is to electrify our houses. So, for example, we haven't been able to put solar collectors on our house because we live in the middle of the woods. But we can, through uh, PSEG, which is our supplier of electricity, um, we can purchase from another company through them wind power. So my husband and I pay a, a bit of a premium and we are able to do that. Everyone is not. Um, and so we are pulling that much wind energy into the system that we use. So we know it's not direct, but you get the gist. And so I've had all sorts of um, gas burners. Well, now I've got an electric kettle and now I've got an electric air fryer and now I've got an electric, um, what do you call those pressure cookers? Oh yeah, like an Instapot. Um, so I've shifted and I've also got a sample, one of those magnetic heaters. You mean in induction cooktop? I've got that. And so I'm, I've um, switched all those things. The one thing that we need to continue to work on, we've had somebody in about a heat pump because we still have uh, fossil fuel powered hot water. That's the last thing that we need to get rid of. And we're looking into heat pumps so we can do that. So that is in the first week. And what we do is co-host when we're hosting, we tell other people in an email, what we've done so it couldn't be possibly an inspiration for them. Um, they don't have to look at that because we don't want to overwhelm them. But sometimes it helps to see what other people have been up to uh, to make our plans. And we also read the other people in the group's plans so that if you're a host and you've already done something, you can say, hey, you're you're changing your whatever. Here's a great uh, way that I did it or you know, other information. And I want to point out, by the way, if you, there are now, since yesterday, uh, since Monday, uh, there are federal credits, uh, tax credits, and for low and moderate income, direct upfront, direct upfront payments to buy things like induction cooktops and induction stoves heat pump, water heaters, uh, solar energy, yeah. and all and, and heat pumps to heat and cool your home. So um, it's a really exciting time to be in a carbon crew because there's so much more support for it now. Um, Dar Riley, I want to thank you so much for talking with us about Carbon Crew Project. We will link to it. There are loads of resources on your website. 
Thank you so much, Francesca. I totally enjoyed it. Go to writersvoice.net for links to the Carbon Crew Project, as well as to resources mentioned by Dar Riley during our conversation. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. You can also sign up to get the show delivered straight to your inbox or subscribe to the podcast and the newsletter. And follow us on Twitter at Writer's Voice, all one word. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. Francesca Rhiannon.